Open your Bibles, if you have one, or your device, (laughs) to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. Father, we pray you'd open your word to us. We ask that you would illuminate your word. Lord, help it to be relevant. Give us the ability to see ourselves in the midst of these things, to apply these things to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We wrapped up the first major section in the book of Romans last week. Uh, and and it, it's interesting because the first section of, of this letter, it, it sets up a powerful negative argument for the second section, which is what we're going to start looking at today. Uh, I mentioned before, you got to see how bad the bad news is before you can appreciate how good the good news is. And I believe that that was Paul's purpose. He wanted to, to draw a very stark contrast uh, between the depravity of man and the righteousness of God, which is actually imputed or placed on us, given put in our account. So he concluded the section between chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 20, which we wrapped up last week, with uh, the rabbis would later call it a, a, a midrash, uh, but it, basically it was a rabbinic commentary from the Old Testament, and it's where he gathered a whole bunch of different scriptures together uh, to make... Uh, sort of a, a homily, sort of a, he's doing a Bible study here. And in, in that, he pronounces a 14 count indictment on every living being, essentially, uh, from chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. So in that, he demonstrated from God's word the utter depravity, without exception, of every single human being. Then, having rested his case, he goes on and draws a conclusion in verses 19 and 20. And that's where we wrapped up last week. I'm going to read them again because context is everything. And we, in order to fully grasp the context of verses 21 and following, we we want to look at this from verse 19. Uh, And so just bear with me on that. It says in, in 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, referring to the law of Moses, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So we looked at before that now we know that the law was only for the Jews. And yet he's talking about every mouth be stopped and the entire world becoming guilty. Remember, we looked at that the Jews do the things from the law and the Gentiles do instinctively the things that the law lays out. In other words, there's a righteous standard that we all know, that our conscience bears witness. And we talked about that, that that conscience has fallen, and we can rationalize just about anything. But the point is, is everybody is guilty. Verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. In other words, it's not what you do. It's who you believe. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And I want to look at that uh, for a minute. He, he says, essentially, he says, the verdict is in. In this first section in Romans, we've seen in studying the whole thing that it was to bring the whole world under the judgment of God. Guilty, helpless. You can't do anything to get out of that hole. Uh, I love the illustration is that what the law does. Let's say you're walking along and you fall into a hole and it's a deep hole with kind of slick walls and you're down in this hole and you're trying to figure out how on earth am I going to get out? There is no way for me to climb out. And all of a sudden you see uh, somebody's face kind of comes over the top of the hole and he's looking down at you 
<laughs> you, you appeal to him, let me get out, help me out. Uh, and you see this guy, he pulls out a pad of paper and he starts writing. And pretty soon after he's written for a while, he tears the sheet off and he just kind of lets it float down to the bottom of the hole where you are and you get a hold of it. And you look at this thing and it says on this piece of paper, 10 ways not to fall into holes. It's not going to do, that's what the law does. It, it, it shuts men up under sin, but it doesn't offer a way of escape. So seeing that we're helpless, that we're condemned, that the judgment of God is on us, I have three questions. The first is, what if it all stopped here? What if? What if that was it? The second is, if it had, where would your and my eternal destiny be? What would become of us? And the third, related to the second, which is related to the first, would there be any hope for you and I? Would there be any hope for humanity? Rhetorical questions, the answer is no. We know that. I'll give you a hint. It did happen this way in the days of Noah. And Jesus, folks, the clock is ticking. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah. So, and I'm paraphrasing, when you get out towards the end of the age, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. That's sobering. Enough said. So he wraps up verse, verse 20 with the statement, by the law is the knowledge of sin. And okay, let's have a moment of honesty here. <laughs> well, I hope you have a lot of moments of honesty, but for the sake of what we're doing this morning, let's say that you're driving down the road and you see a speed limit sign, 35. All right. You look down at your odometer and it doesn't say 35. Yeah. Shock and awe, huh? Yeah, over. You are just so righteous, Scott. <laughs> he said 34. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, we can all go home now. <laughs> the point is, is that when we look at by the law comes the knowledge of sin, we see that the speed limit sign provides the standard. But it can't keep us from speeding, can it? No, that's not the purpose. It's not the intent. By the law is the knowledge of sin, but the law has zero power to keep us from sinning. None. Therefore, the law could not, cannot, and never will justify, which means to make righteous, anyone. Can't happen. It's an impossibility. Any more than a speed limit sign will keep you from getting a ticket, or worse, keep you from getting in a wreck. It's not what it's there for. Since man is a sinner with no help in himself. We looked at that as regarding the Gentiles. They, they, they are a law unto themselves, but they, and their conscience has said either defended them or, or condemned them. And if the Jews had no help in the law, what's left but for us, for humanity, to throw ourselves upon the mercy of God? You don't want justice. You want mercy. So as Paul wrapped up that section, I, I picture him now. He, he, this guy, a guy by the name of Gaius is writing this all down as Paul dictates. And I, I picture Paul pacing back and forth, you know, wearing a little trough in the floor. <laughs> That's an overstretch. But I mean, he's into this. I mean, he is just dictating this and the Holy Spirit is on him and giving him these things to write down. And I picture him getting to this place where he has just finished putting the lid on humanity and saying, you are utterly condemned, you are utterly without hope, you are utterly lost. 
Now, I picture his face brightening a bit. He's going to begin to joyfully account uh, some things that stand in a stark contrast to our guilt and helplessness. And, and, and folks, it doesn't end with condemnation. Not for you, not for me, not for anyone out there in a dying world that is willing to turn. But you've got to be willing. We'll talk about that. So in verses 21 to 26, we see uh, this concept. It's more than a concept. It's a reality of what it is to be justified by faith. Uh, I want you, I'm going to read through 21 to 26. I want you to note the righteousness of God. How many times? It comes up four times in just these, these short few verses. Verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is a mouthful. We're going to work through it. But I want you to know, folks, it doesn't get any deeper than this. This is the heart of the gospel. You are utterly condemned. I am utterly condemned until such a point as God reaches down and says, all you need to do is to believe that my son is who he claimed to be and that he accomplished the work that he claimed to, that he did accomplish. And you will have all of that erased and you will be seated in the heavenlies and you will be saved. The doctrine of justification by faith is a major doctrine. If people want to, you know, sometimes people want (laughs) to, pastors go through this. Sometimes people want to argue about things, you know, and, 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 and I'm okay with that. I mean, I, I love, the, I love the debate a lot of times, and, and, and yet most of the time, if it's a silly thing, I'm just going to let it go. I'm, you know, people can have their opinions. I'm not there to try to you know, shape, you know, make mountains out of molehills and all that. However, on major doctrinal issues like this, you've got to have this right. And it is absolutely something that I will spend the time and walking out with people that have an opposing view. Because if you change this, you change the gospel. If you change this, you change the work of Christ. That's why it's a major doctrine. It's not just major because somebody said so. It's because it changes the whole thing. So it's good that we have this instruction. It's good that we understand these things because if we don't, then we can be caught off guard, caught unawares. If somebody puts forth some other thing, that were justified some other way, and many people do it. I grew up in a religion where they said that I would be justified, yeah, sure, by grace, but also by the laws and ordinances of the gospel, which is weird, and also by water baptism, and oh, by the way, also by good works. All of that, because what that does, if you run that out, folks, you're saying the cross wasn't enough. That's an affront to God. In Isaiah 64, 6, looking at man's righteousness, Isaiah talking about the condition of the nation in his day. 
He says, we are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. There's a deeper translation to that that I'm not going to go into. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That was true in Isaiah's day. And I would just encourage you, look around. Apply that to what we see in our world today. So now picking it up in verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God, again, there's that term, apart from the law is revealed. So he's talking in this whole thing that he said before, when he essentially shut men up under sin, it's because man trying to work out his own righteousness, to work out his own justification, can't work. He says, but now, I love that term. Uh, What he's doing, this is the heart of the letter. When he says, but now, the righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, it's, It's not the righteousness of man anymore. What he's doing, he's answering the all-important question. According to the gospel, how can ungodly sinners be justified by a holy God? But now it's a transitional statement. He's saying, look at when you see the word but, you refer to what's been said. And what's been said is this whole condemning thing, this whole indictment. But now it's a shift. And this is where he totally takes a whole new direction. It's a stark contrast to what's previously been said. It's similar to when Jesus was at the Last Supper and they were taking, they were going to, they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover together. He and his men, they're in the upper room. And as they were engaged in doing the Passover, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying there's something new. This isn't the old covenant of law. This is the new covenant. And what Paul is doing here is he's giving us the nuts and bolts of what that new covenant in Jesus's blood is about. So when he says the righteousness of God is revealed here in verse 21, he's tying it back. Remember in verse 17 of chapter one, he says, for in it, in what? In the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So all of this condemnation that he's talked about is sandwiched in between his statement there that the righteousness of God is revealed and here the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed to nullify that condemnation. Everything he said from 118 till now has been to demonstrate man's inability to justify himself. It's a product of his own depravity to even try. In Luke chapter 18... This is one of my favorite passages. I visit it from time to time. But it so clearly illustrates what we're talking about here. Jesus is with the rich young ruler. In Luke 18, 18, uh, you can turn there if you'd like. It says, now a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I put the emphasis on I because that's all about him after all. And Jesus said to him in verse 19, it says of Luke 18, Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. We have just been talking about in Romans about no one except for God is good. Look at the parallels here. They're striking. In verse 20, he says, you know, the commandments, we've been talking about the law. Don't commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. 
standing there talking to this guy, and, and the guy just, he just looks back at Jesus and he says, I've done all, the, I've, all these things I've kept from my youth. And it's sort of, <laughs> he says, all these things I have kept. Uh, but I, I just imagine the self-assurance that this guy is standing there in. Verse 22, so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And now, and then come and follow me. This guy had everything. He had wealth. He had at least an outwardly righteous life. He had respect. He had prestige. But Jesus puts his finger on the one thing he doesn't have. And he doesn't have eternal life. That's the question that the man puts forth to him. He couldn't have eternal life based upon attempting to justify himself. That's the point. Uh, Either through his earthly status or through law keeping. This guy says, I've kept all of that. What more do I need to do, Jesus, to have eternal life? What do I need to do to be saved? Verse 23, after Jesus had said these things to him, it says, when he heard this, he became very sorrowful because he was very rich. Now, I want to be careful here. This doesn't mean that poor people are somehow spiritually superior and wealthy people are not. That misses the point of what Jesus is saying. For this guy, his wealth was in the way. For this guy, he was justifying himself. And Jesus knew. He looked into his heart. He knew that this guy was justifying himself by, you know, I'm a prominent guy. I've got it all together. My life is going somewhere. And Jesus said, if that's the basis, essentially, if that's the basis upon which you're justifying yourself, there's always going to be one more thing. If you're, if you're justifying yourself on the basis of law, rule keeping, there's always going to be one more rule. And then he gives him that, what that is. He says, now go and sell everything you have. For him, that was a stumbling block. Wouldn't be for a lot of us because we don't have that much stuff. But for him, that was a big deal. In verse 24, and when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier, he gives a humorous illustration here. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So we see here that this guy's trust was obviously in himself. His wealth wasn't his stumbling block, though. Attempting to justify himself through his wealth was. Attempting to justify himself through law-keeping was. In verse 26, it says that those who were, the people that are standing around as Jesus is, is having this interchange with this guy, they, when they heard it, they said, well, who then can be saved? They're saying, if this guy who has it all, he's kept Moses' law from his youth onward. If that doesn't cut it, Jesus, then what does? And Jesus said, and, and I love this because it ties right back to where we're at in Romans. He said, the things which are impossible with men to justify yourself are possible with God. It's not your righteousness. It's God's righteousness. And it has to be imputed to you on the basis of faith or you don't have it. That's why the, 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 the focus of the gospel is to believe. Jesus' point with this guy is we'll never be righteous. We'll never be justified through our own efforts. It is, it is an impossibility. And it's the same thing that Paul says here in Romans. But... And we're looking at that word, but, in verse 21. There's now, through the cross of Christ, a righteousness that's available. There, this, you are not without hope. There is righteousness available. It's just not yours. 
the, the religious leaders of Jesus's day, when, when Jesus uh, was giving the, the Sermon on the Mount, this is free, it's not in my notes, but he's doing the Sermon on the Mount and, and, and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, you will in no way see the kingdom of heaven. It's not possible. When he says, you must be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. He's saying there's two ways to get to heaven. Perfection (laughs) from birth. Not like this guy, but I mean, we're talking thoughts, words, and deeds. That's the basis of God's judgment. You got to be perfect in every conceivable way from birth till your last breath. Then you get to go to heaven or you can believe. You can simply trust that Jesus was that person and that he is sharing, he is imputing his righteousness to you. The righteousness of God comes by faith, is what does make it possible to be saved. Back to Romans 3.21, he's saying the gospel, this righteousness of God was witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's because if you look in, 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 in the, the, the scripture itself says, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. It pointed to Jesus. There were types and shadows throughout the Old Testament that, that pointed to a future fulfillment that Christ would, would be the fulfillment of these things. It was also foretold by the voices of the Old Testament prophets. After Jesus' resurrection, he was gathered with his men and he's giving them, remember it said that after he rose from the dead, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their hearts. He gave them the ability to comprehend because so many times throughout his public ministry, they walked away scratching their heads. They had no idea what, number one, they didn't have any idea what he, what he said, what he meant or what was meant by something he did. And number two, <laughs> they'd scratch their heads because they never knew what he was going to do or say next. But now on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, he opens their minds. And it says in Luke twenty four forty four, then he, Jesus, said to them, these are the words which I spoke with you while I was still with you, that all things which must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. That's what Paul's talking about here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. What he's saying is, is the problem is not speed limit signs. The problem is speeding. (laughs) The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. All right, so, so get your eyes off the sign and understand that that's the problem. And, and, and in the same way that that sign is not going to keep you from getting in a wreck, the law will never keep you or give you the ability to be justified before God. Jesus fulfilled that for a purpose. We'll get to that in a, in a little bit. The answer, by the way, <laughs> and I'm going to try it real hard not to do a major rabbit trail here. Those of you that know me <laughs> know that sometimes is an effort. The answer is not, I know, got an idea. Let's get rid of all the speed limit signs. Then we don't have to worry about it. As a side note, the cultural shifts that we're seeing, worse every day. Our world is going further in the toilet every day. And yeah, I meant that. And there's every evidence that it's just going to continue to get worse. It was prophesied that that's how it would be as in the days of Noah. It's the same thing. 
is let's just pull down the speed limit signs. I know, let's take the Ten Commandments out of the courtroom. Let's pull that speed limit sign down. Then we can do what we want. I know, and it's man in his, in his very limited depravity, uh, well, depravity is not limited, but his limited understanding in his total depravity, his solution so often to these things is let's just get rid of God, then we don't have to deal with it. And that's happening all around us. Look at the Equality Act that's in Congress right now. For those of you that are on our, our, our text and email list, I've sent out a couple of articles recently, one yesterday, uh, that deal with the Equality Act and what it does for the church, what it does for our culture, how it profoundly changes things. Let's get rid of the speed limit signs. Then we don't have to worry about whether we're speeding or not. That's not the answer. Sin is no longer simply being tolerated. Remember years ago, they said, we want tolerance for the LGBT, QRS, whatever. No, and then it was, no, we don't want tolerance. We want, we want acceptance. And that's no longer good enough. It's, we don't want just to be tolerated or accepted. We want you to celebrate this. And if you don't celebrate it, then you are bad. In suppressing, suppressing the truth of God for a lie, which we looked at a few weeks ago, man's standard is taking the place of God's. And the results are and will be disastrous. The answer is not take away the speed limit signs. Verse 21 again, says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. Now Paul tells us in verse 22 how it is obtained. In verse 21, he says this, tell, he tells us how it's not obtained. In verse 22, he says this is how it is obtained, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, a word on faith here, is, faith is not an attempt to earn salvation. It's, it's not a work. It's a condition of the human heart. It's a simple acceptance uh, of the salvation which God offers, trusting that that salvation is a free gift. You can't do anything to earn it. It is free. It is utterly, absolutely free. We'll look at that more as we go further in Romans. So what does it mean by saying it is to, to all and on all who believe? First of all, it is God's righteousness, and it's to all in the sense that it's available to all. The gospel is available to everybody. It's offered to all. It's sufficient for all. Okay. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He offered his son to all. But it is only on those who believe. That's why it's to all and on all. In other words, that whoever believes, going further with John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish. So the offer is to the whole world, but it's only effective in those who take and appropriate it by faith. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a famous verse. It's one that we use a lot because he really, he sums up with this verse, everything that he said in chapters one through three. Everybody, that condemnation is to all men. From the most reprobate criminal to the saintliest saint, all have sinned. And by the way, all will sin. Why? 
Because, first of all, we are sinners by nature. It is our nature. Out of that, we are sinners by practice. So, let me just ask you a question. Is murdering someone what makes that person a murderer? Is lying to someone what makes one a liar? Is committing adultery what makes one an adulterer? Now, if you want to go by the letter of the law, yes. But remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you so much as look on a woman with lust in your heart, you're there. You're guilty of that offense. So in God's economy, if you look at that, if you look, if you've ever had a murderous thought, it's that man, I wish that person was dead. I see your faces on that one. <laughs> but, it, or if, if you have ever told, and I, I love the way we, we, we try to grade, we classify a white lie. <laughs> what is a white lie? It's a lie. It's naked deception. If you've ever thought about inappropriate sexual activity with someone else, in God's economy, that makes you a murdering, lying adulterer. Straight up. Because the point here is it's not the letter of the law, but it's the spirit of the law that condemns a person. That's why, that's part of why we all stand condemned. He says in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, again, the nuts and bolts of justification. It's not just God just says, okay, I'm going to justify him. I'm going to declare them righteous. No, there was a price to that. There was a cost to be paid. I want you to notice in verse 24, who's taking the initiative here? The word justify literally means to reckon or to declare righteous. And it is solely an act of God's grace, his unmerited favor. The only way that you can have righteousness is number one, you have to believe. You have to trust in the person and the work of Christ. And number two, there is nothing you can do to obtain it. You can simply receive it, period. Now, there's a popular definition of justification that I want to talk about for a minute. And it's the, the, the sense of just as if I'd never sinned. That's good, but I don't believe it goes far enough. When God justifies a, a believing sinner, he not only acquits him from the guilt, but clothes him in his own righteousness and thus makes him absolutely fit for heaven. You, he does not see you in your sinful state. He no longer sees us in that way. He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And in that, it's not just, just as if I'd never sinned, what it means, well, acquittal means only that the charges are dropped. So we've been acquitted from the verdict that we looked at last week. Justification means that righteousness has been added. It's been imputed. We're treated as, as if it was yours. If it fully belongs to you, the righteousness of Jesus himself, it is your possession. It's something that is added to you. So, essentially having been brought into God's courtroom and having been found guilty, now by faith in the redemptive work of Jesus on that cross and only his work, God freely acquits. He lovingly accepts you. He pours out his grace and clothes you in his righteousness. Folks, that's what is meant with the, the, the slide that I had, the uh, title slide for this morning's message. To go from rags, your righteousness is like filthy rags, to robes. The Bible speaks of the robes of righteousness that God clothes his people in. 
So being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. In verse 25, he says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. A couple of definitions to to redeem, redemption. It means to buy back. As a kid, I used to go collect Coke bottles. My dad had a restaurant. He always had a bunch of Coke bottles in the back, big racks of them. And his restaurant happened to be next to Safeway. <laughs> I was always redeeming those. I was letting the store buy them back, give me some cash. So redemption means to buy back. And we're not talking about soda pop bottles. We're talking about human souls. Propitiation is the act of making things right. I've said before, propitiation literally means to absorb wrath. That when Jesus hung on that cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That he, we don't understand it, but he was taking the full impact of sin for the sins of humanity in that moment. And he was completely alone and he was wearing our sin. That's propitiation. The act of making things right. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. He did it for me. So Jesus' blood was the purchase price necessary to satisfy the righteous requirements of a holy God. Question, what is that righteous requirement? And the answer is life. Folks, the language of heaven is love. But I make a contrast there. The currency of heaven is life. Sin brings a penalty, forfeit of life. We call it death. The bottom line, he purchased your life with his blood. That's what he's saying here. Literally trading his life for yours. He says, give me your sin. I'll give you my righteousness. If that doesn't excite you, if that doesn't trigger something deep inside, I encourage you, look at it. When he says God is passing over the sins that are previously committed, the imagery here is powerful. Look at the first Passover where they they painted the blood. It was it had to do with the blood. It comes back to the blood. The blood was on the door. If the blood was on the door, death didn't visit the people inside. So when he's saying here that God is passing over your sins, he's saying if, if Jesus' blood is on your life, he will pass over the sins that you've previously committed. Verse 26, the purpose in it is to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. He's demonstrating not, it, it, you, forget about yours. It'll never measure up. It doesn't even, it doesn't even come to, it comes to nothing. But his righteousness is that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, heart of the gospel. What he's saying here is that justification, being declared righteous, it solves a divine dilemma. Let me explain. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we read that God is love. And we know that poor God so loved the world that he is love. Here we see, as it says, that God is just. In other words, he is legally just. He is, he has bound himself to his own justice. He doesn't have justice. He is just. Think about that one later. <laughs> but the point is, although God loves us deeply, he also sees our rebellion clearly. How do you reconcile that? It's as if he said, I love them so much, but I'm going to overlook their sin. If he said that, he wouldn't 
be just. He wouldn't be God. He can't just say, no big deal. Because there's a divine penalty involved. Because the currency of heaven is life itself. That's essentially the essence of God's dilemma. He is love, but he's just. So what's the solution? The only solution is justification by faith. Is that you, through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, can be justified with the righteousness of God being transferred to your account. You can never get your own. He wraps up by saying in verse 27, well, in in light of all of that, where is boasting then? It's excluded. There's nothing to boast about. You bring nothing to the equation except a willing heart, willing to believe that he did all of the work and you simply receive it. He says, where is boasting then? It it is excluded. By what law? Of works? Is there anything you could do implied here? No, but by the law of faith. Folks, I am as upset about as anybody about what I see going on in our world. I have to guard my heart. Yeah, there's evil out there. Yeah, there are people out there that are doing crazy things. And it's upsetting. But the minute I start thinking that I've, I've got something, that I'm, I'm better than they are somehow, the minute I start leaning on my own stuff, is the minute I start moving away from the fact that God calls me to love them, to love your enemies, bless and curse not. Somebody wants you to carry their coat, take it two miles, don't take it one. These principles come into play because we understand that we've been justified solely by faith through the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. He purchased us. A couple of weeks back, we looked at boasting with regard to the Jews. Their boasting was rooted in self-righteousness. Seeing that true salvation is rooted, as we've seen here over and over, he says God's righteousness. It's rooted in his righteousness. There's no room for boasting. That's his point. If it were by works, then everybody would want to jump on board and self-congratulate. Does it drive you nuts when you see, and I don't watch network television anymore. It's, it's just a waste of time. And it, it causes that anger I was talking about. But the point is, they have all these award shows. And it's like, let's, I know, let's all get together and let's tell each other how wonderful we are. And let's give each other awards. Hey, you got first. And next year, maybe you'll make me first. You know, it's like, it's nuts. <laughs> Self-promotion, self-congratulating doesn't cut it in the kingdom of God. But when salvation is on the principle of faith, there is no room to boast. If I boast, I boast in the Lord. If I boast, it's going to be how good he is. If I boast, it's going to be because he threw the doors of heaven open and purchased my soul from the jaws of hell. That's what we can boast about, folks. It's not about boasting in our stuff, how good we are. How many little old ladies we helped across the street, good as that might be, how much we gave, how much we did, all of the stuff. And we can slip into it. But at the end of the day, there is zero in your account outside of Christ. In Christ, your account is overflowing with inexhaustible grace, inexhaustible love, inexhaustible righteousness. Praise God. Verse 28, he says, Therefore we conclude that that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. He reiterates here that true faith leaves no room for self-help 
self-improvement or self-salvation. Uh, it, the, part of the whole social gospel thing that's going on out there is, it, it, it's, I call it therapeutic moralistic deism. It's not the gospel. It's let me show you how to be a better person. No, there needs to be a death in your family. And by the way, that needs to be you. It's not about improving ourselves. It's about asking God to work in our hearts. It's about allowing him into the private recesses that nobody else can go. It's about repenting of sin in a continual basis. It's about allowing him free reign in our hearts because that flesh, that old nature is always there. And there's a battle, we're told, between the flesh and the spirit. There's a battle inside. And it's over who is sitting on the throne of your heart. The flesh is weak. Jesus said that to his guys in the garden before he was arrested. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh wants the position in our heart, but there's no power. The spirit brings power. And we have to allow him to have preeminence, to have that place in our heart. In other words, to walk by the spirit is a choice. Verse 29, he, or, or is he the God of the Jews only? He's, he's saying this because, you know, there were Jews and Gentiles in that day. I mean, we're all Gentiles here, unless you happen to be Jewish, and then that's all right too. But, but the point is, is there were Jews and Gentiles, and they were two big groups back then. A Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish. And he's telling these people this. He knows that there's a sizable Jewish contingent in the Roman church. We see that and from chapter 16. There are a lot of Jewish names in there. So we know that there's a sizable contingent and he's wanting to make sure because there was Judaism, there was the whole pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. There was all of this spiritual mush out there. And he knows that the Jews, their whole stumbling block was that they got lifted up and he wants to be sure they're not going to get lifted up over this message because the gospel is equal. It goes equally to Jew and Gentile. So he says, or is he the God of the Jews only? He is, is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Be clear, Jewish believers. This is not just for you. This is for anybody that willing, is willing to come. He says, since there's one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So what's the difference there? Because the gospel is not Jewish, nor is it pagan. Paul is saying that there's one God that's going to justify both. He says the circumcision, Jewish believers, will be justified by simple faith, not through the law of Moses. And they were given the oracles of God. This is not about that. He's saying the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, would be justified through their faith. It doesn't have anything to do with law. Verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Again, he says, certainly not. Genomai. That's that strong word where it's translated in different translations. God forbid. In the New American Standard, may it never be. Don't even think about it as a loose translation. Don't even think about that. No. Do we make void the law through faith? No, no. Not, it's not even part of what I'm talking about is what he's saying here. It's not saying that we live by the law or we're saved by the law of Moses. This passage teaches the opposite. So what is he saying? What he's saying is it's not about tearing down speed limit signs. The law is a tutor, a guide, an illustrator of human sin. You take away the law, you take away the standard. 
The law establishes the penalty for sin. That's part of what Jesus meant when he said that he would fulfill it. He would pay that penalty. Now, anyone who has broken the law can avail himself of the fact that Christ paid that penalty on his behalf. Thus, the law is fulfilled in us in Christ. Does that make sense? You don't have to live by that. We don't live by the law. It's not if then. If you obey, then you get to live. No, it's grace. It's since the work has been done, you get to love. It's a whole lot better deal. The goal of the law has been met in Christ, not by human performance, but by the free gift of the grace of God through Jesus himself. In John 17, as he prays, just before he's arrested, he prays, and part of that prayer is is he looks down through the ages, fully man, but fully God, and he prays for us. He prayed for you and I that we would understand this, that his word would be opened to us, that by the power of his Holy Spirit, that we could have an assurance of where our lives are. It does not matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how you've sinned. It doesn't matter the, the, the magnitude or the de- none of that. He says, push it all away. Yeah, there's sometimes consequences to sin. I'm not saying that. But he says, as far as I'm concerned, He says, I will remember your sin no more in the book of Hebrews. Does that mean that he has a bad memory? No. What he's saying is, I am choosing to forget. There's a difference. Why? Because if you've been justified by faith, you stand. In in, in a very real sense, you stand in the righteousness of God. No one can take that away from you. Jesus said, of those that you've given me, I have not lost one. I'm not going to even go into the debate about can you lose your salvation or no, no, no. I don't believe you can. I believe that if you belong to him, you belong to him. I think there are people that think they belong to him that don't. And there are big parts of the scripture that address that. But I am secure. I love what Pastor Chuck, Chuck Smith said. I was at a pastor's conference one time and at the end of it, (laughs) they had a, a question and answer portion, you know, right at the end of this conference and everybody wrote their questions on papers and they passed them up and and um, and somebody said, what about eternal security, Chuck? And he just looked and he had, I don't know if you've seen a picture, he had, just had a famous smile. He just lighted up the room with a smile and he looked up and he had this big smile on his face and he said, don't ask me about yours. As for me, I'm secure eternally. And I love that. Don't ask me about yours. Be sure that your heart is in the right spot when it comes to these things. Be sure that you have transacted with Jesus and that you are wearing God's righteousness. It's the only way to heaven. It's the only way to stand. It's really, truly, folks, the only way to live because you don't have to live with the guilt of your past sin. That is gone. It's gone. Don't think about it. I look at the cancel culture that's going on out there and people are digging up stuff that people did wrong 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago, whatever. That fake, that counterfeit morality that is out there that has taken hold in our culture as a result of kicking God out. There's no mercy there. There's no grace. It's just judgment. And we, as children of the king, we don't get any of that. 
We understand mercy. And he says, you know what? If you have received my mercy, I want you to do something with it. I want you to give it away. I want you to live mercifully. You have received my forgiveness. You have been absolved of all guilt. You want to know what I want you to do? I want you to give it away. And I want you to be forgiving to other people. You have received my grace, unmerited favor. I love you because I choose to love you. That's what grace is. Only one thing, give it away. Go out and love other people. That's the mark. Jesus said, you know what? They'll know you by your love. Why? Because it's not just God's righteousness that works in us. It's God's love that works through us. Let's pray. Father, as we look in these things and we see in your word the power of what it is to be justified, to be right in your eyes, to be declared righteous with the righteousness of God, I am just, it thrills my heart to know that you did all of the work, that you did everything that was necessary to purchase our souls, that the transaction is complete and you simply beckon us in love to simply believe it, to trust that the work is done, to trust that the the cross of Calvary has an effect down through the ages on us. God, thank you. Words, Words fail us, Lord, as to the gratitude that wells up inside over the work that you've accomplished when we were helpless, when we were guilty, when we were condemned, when the verdict was in, that you sent your son as the propitiation to pay the price. Thank you.